my fellow investors, welcome back to another episode of the Newcomer Investor Channel, where we talk about stocks, share insights, and debate. Hope you're all having a wonderful time. As always, my friends, if you like this show, please make sure to give us a five stars on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. And of course, make sure to subscribe on YouTube. Now, before we begin, I do have to remind you that nothing I say is financial advice. In fact, it's only entertainment. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just telling you what I do. But as you'll see in this episode, I have made many mistakes in the past and I will continue to make mistakes as I keep learning. So you always have to do your own research. Now for today's episode, we're going to start off with a very painful subject. That topic is Algonquin Power, the infamous Algonquin Power. Such an interesting business, which honestly had all the ingredients. It had a great story and yet turned out to be a disaster. And that was, I would say, my biggest mistake, uh, not only of this year, but possibly of my whole investing Actually, scratch that. Alibaba and Teladoc were worse. But for now, I would say for this year, this has been my worst mistake because I was so confident that a regulated utility type business would be safe and at least not fall, you know, 40 to 50% down in price. And yet we see what happens. They cut their dividend and it was a catastrophe. So what's important with mistakes like this, of course, you know, as an investor, and I'm still learning and growing, right? It's okay to make mistakes, but it is important to learn from them and to not make those same mistakes again. So at least I know for me, the key learning firstly was, you know, you can be a company in a really rock solid kind of sector. Because when you look at utilities, I mean, there's nothing more predictable than that. Usually you can be a company in a sector like that and still do very poorly if you are just not well managed. And of course, if you have a lot of debt, you got to be careful because if you can't manage that debt, then you are in trouble. So that was a key learning for me. And for sure, I will take that in consideration for my next stock selections. Now, of course, in the spirit of transparency, I do let you know uh, I still own all my shares. I haven't bought any during the dip and I haven't sold any either. I'm just holding on to them and I have no plans to sell them uh, for the foreseeable future. At least I'm not planning right now to sell at a loss. I think that there is a path to recovery, but it will take a very long time. Now, what is next for Algonquin Power? Well, if you recall a few months ago, they had decided that they were launching a strategic review to see if they were going to split their business. If you know, currently they have two main units. They have the regulated utility group. So that is, you know, normal, regular utilities. And then they had the renewable energy segment. And they had wondered if they wanted to split them, possibly sell off one of the assets or become two companies. And on August 10th, they finally did reveal their uh, results to that strategic review. And the result is that they are going to sell off the renewable assets entirely. So they're not going to become two companies. They're actually just going to get rid of the renewables. Now, to me, that's actually quite sad because there weren't many companies like this, to my knowledge, uh, companies that were hybrid, you know, partly regular utilities and partly renewables. But selling off the renewable assets is basically going to make them more in line with traditional utility companies like Fortis or Emera. So it's really the end of an era here. I mean, the whole pitch of a hybrid company like this was that you could get exposure to renewable space without going into a pure play renewable company, which of course is inherently a little riskier, right? But funnily enough, it turns out that this hybrid company was even riskier than a renewable pure play. Now, in terms of size, it's not a giant in a renewable space, but it is a key player uh, already in North America. So they own or have an interest in about four gigawatts of installed renewable energy capacity. And they also have a development pipeline of over six gigawatts. So that's that's quite a lot. 
Uh, so in total, they have 46 wind, solar, and water facilities, uh, and they are across 11 U.S. states and six Canadian provinces. So all of that is going to be sold, and I'm sure Brookfield Renewable is looking at this uh, as a potential takeover target. Now, with all this, we have to ask ourselves, what is next for Algonquin Power? Um, it is hard to tell, honestly, what's going to happen. I mean, will they be able to make that sale? How much money will they get out of it? It is certainly not a good time for someone to try to sell, and it's certainly a better time for a prospective buyer because interest rates are high. A lot of people trying to sell assets right now are people that are a little desperate. Um, and, I, you know, for that, that recalls a little bit that episode that I did on TC Energy. I think it was two episodes ago, right? Uh, so it's not a good time to sell. So we'll see what happens. In terms of Algonquin Power, their plans with the sale would be to uh, pay back some of their debts. That's good. Also do some share buybacks. That's good. They are also committed to keeping the dividends now. And they actually say it'll help it stabilize. So that's also good news. Uh, another good thing, the previous CEO, Arun Benskota, has stepped down. I'm sure behind closed doors he was told by the board to leave. And he's been replaced by, uh, what's his name, Chris Something, who was actually the ex-CEO of Emera for a long time. So that's actually a good thing. Emera is a very well-run uh, utility company based out of Atlantic Canada. Uh, they've done an excellent job. I mean, very similar to Fortis, right? So Ogonquin Power now, I think, is in good hands. He is just an inter interim CEO. But who knows, maybe he'll stay there for a while. We'll see again. So there's a lot of unknowns, but I do think they are on a better path now. I am seeing a road to recovery. They're putting forward a plan. They want to be more reliable, more stable. They're not going to do any of those dangerous adventures anymore. They're going to focus on operational excellence with regulated utility assets. So that's a good thing. Now, of course, I'm not here to give financial advice, right? But in my opinion, the worst is probably over for this company. I don't see the stock price all of a sudden falling, you know, another 50%. That would be very surprising, uh, in my opinion, especially after they complete the sale and then they really stay into that utility space. I think they will slowly start coming back. So I am holding on to this one for the long term. For our next topic, we are now in the middle of Canadian bank earnings. They all usually tend to report kind of around the same time. I am now going to talk about the Scotiabank earnings because I hold Scotiabank. It is in fact my largest bank holding at around 7% of portfolio. Uh, Scotiabank's earnings were neither disastrous nor great, kind of in the middle here. I think we all got used to Scotiabank kind of being that underdog that just keeps disappointing us. And for once, I wasn't that disappointed. And I guess the market agrees with me because as of the end of the trading day, the stock is up nearly 3%. So that was a pretty nice and positive reaction to these earnings. Now, what happened this quarter with Scotiabank? So starting off with the negative, the net income is 221 billion. It's down 15% year over year. That's a lot. Earnings per share of $1.72, also down 17% year over year. That's pretty bad. Uh, however, sequentially, so that's quarter over quarter, we're up 1.1%. So it seems like even though everything's down, we've kind of stabilized, at least for now. That's a good thing. The other good news, of course, if you happen to hold Scotiabank mostly as an income-oriented stock, so not really for the capital appreciation, but rather just for the dividends, I am pleased to let you know with those numbers now, the dividend is maintained at 1.06, so that's a comfortable payout ratio of 61%. That means their profits could still fall quite a bit before they reach a dangerous level. 
You know, for me, if your payout ratio is under 65 to 70%, you really don't have much to worry about here. So that's very good for Scotiabank. The other point that I found interesting was the divergence in revenue growth rate between the bank's different business lines, right? So if you recall the episode I did with the dividend guy, that was a really nice one. Uh, he explained the big strength of Canadian banks is that they are so large, and there aren't many of them, uh, that they are extremely diversified, so they don't just do one thing. And I think in this case, it actually is a strength also for Scotiabank. So you look at some of their main business lines, Canadian banking is only up 3% in terms of revenues year over year. International banking is up 8%. Global wealth management is up 2%. And global banking and markets is up 17%. So you see how sometimes when you have one of your business units that isn't necessarily doing so well, sometimes at least it gets compensated by the, the good performance of another business unit. So in this case, diversification, I kind of like it. They also included, of course, a note on commercial real estate, which is the talk of the town these days. We're all very concerned about real estate, of course. Now, they mentioned here that including REITs, uh, office exposure is $6.7 billion, which is about 10% of their commercial real estate portfolio. Now, that's actually not that much. Honestly, if office continues to decline, Scotiabank's going to suffer, but it's not going to die, right? So that's actually a good thing here. I wouldn't worry so much about the office situation at this point. I would worry a lot more about people's mortgages. Now, the next part that continues to shock me, I mean, each quarter, because I think I spoke about this last quarter, right? When I did a, a review of the earnings and we had a similar situation, but this continues now. The divergence in performance within the Pacific Alliance countries. Uh, their average return on equity was 13.9%, but... Mexico, 25% return on equity. That's incredible. The Mexican business is really, really good. Meanwhile, Colombia falls now down to minus 0.7%, which is just not that good. And Chile is 9.7%, which is all right. And then we got Peru at 15.2%. So average 13.9%, but clearly you have two countries that are doing pretty good and two countries that are doing not so good. So I'm certainly going to be watching over the next few quarters how they can hopefully turn around uh, the performance of the Colombian business because clearly it's a laggard here. Another big highlight and super shocker for me was the provisions for credit losses. So if you don't know what that is, this is basically money that they set aside in preparation for loans that just aren't going to be repaid. So if they estimate, let's say, 10% of the loans, they're just not going to get that money. They try to set it aside in advance so that it's there and then they're fine. Uh, and that's basically taken out of the profits. So here, the PCLs this quarter were $819 million. That is up 98% year over year. So it's essentially doubled. Now, if you exclude the increase year over year, which was a $407 million, then the net income this year would actually be higher than last year. So that's just insane to me. Definitely the biggest shock of this quarter. And it shows that they are anticipating more and more of a declining macro environment. So I don't know if we're heading in a recession, but we're not heading into a great time, at least not yet. So yeah, overall, given the macro situation, I mean, I wouldn't expect Scotiabank to do super amazing in the next few quarters. But I am also encouraged um, by the fact that they are slowly trying to start getting these expenses under control. They are also hiking up their PCLs, which sucks for now, but also means that this is money that won't be a loss later, if that makes sense. 
And overall, you know, with a 60% payout ratio, I'm still not concerned. I think the bank's going to continue to do okay. I certainly do think that they can get through a recession and then come out stronger later. So for that reason, you know, I'm very happy to continue holding. It is a core foundational holding for me. If the stock were to fall an unreasonable amount, perhaps I'd add a little bit. But for now, you know, as long as it's over 60, I mean, I'm holding on for now. It's good. All right, for our next topic in all transparency, sharing with you some of my buys that I've done on August 28th and 29th. On the 28th, I added to three positions that I already have. Those are five units of the S&P 500. I buy this via the ETF VFV. I am very pleased to say I have now reached 100 units of this ETF. It is still my second position behind Brookfield Corporation, but I think there is um, a path for it to become number one, perhaps by the end of the year. We'll see. I know adding to the S&P 500 near all-time highs seems a little crazy, and it may be, but I do have to remind you and myself, this is for the long term. This is really not a holding that I expect to ever sell out of. This is really one that, regardless of valuation, regardless of anything, I'm just sticking to it and I would like it to compound for the long term. So for that reason, I was happy to deploy this fresh cash into the S&P. My next ad was Alimentation Couchetard. I bought six more shares. Um, it is still a very small position for me. I think it's about 1% of portfolio now, so still got a long ways to go to make it a large holding, but I would like to build it up. I actually bought once again near all-time highs, if not at all-time highs, uh, but the reason is, again, it trades at a very cheap valuation, in my opinion, at around 17 times earnings. That's a pretty low PE for an incredible compounder. I look at other companies like Dollarama that trade at 30 times earnings, uh, you know, I think Alimentation Couchetard is just as good. So I'm happy to pay with that valuation uh, to get this great business. And I do think that they have a good future ahead of them, even with the rise of electric vehicles. Of course, I could be wrong, but so far management has been pretty fantastic. And, and I do trust them to navigate um, their way through this. Another thing that I do enjoy a lot about the business, uh, and I really have to emphasize this, is the dividend is so small that they have so much room to keep investing in themselves, in acquisitions, and in stock buybacks, which I love. They recently announced a buyback program with the Quebec Pension Fund, uh, so they're going to be buying, I think it's like a few hundred million worth of some shares. And yeah, I mean, there's endless potential there with the buybacks because their business is highly cash generative, uh, so they can use it to do things like that. Now for my next buy, this was the ETF XEI, the Canadian High Dividend uh, Index Fund. This one is not trading at all-time highs. In fact, it's actually flat year to date, uh, and I think it's down about 4% over the last year. This is a great ETF, you know, kind of set it and forget it. Now the trade trailing yield is around 5.2%, I believe. What I like to see in there too, actually, is of course, you know, the, the, the weightings of the stocks in their changes, but right now the top two holdings are actually in energy. So we've got Canadian Natural Resources and we've got Suncor. I like this because those are two stocks that I don't own directly. I haven't even taken the time to really study them. I used to own Suncor a long time ago, but CNQ, I've never owned it, never researched it, but I hear a lot of good things about it. And it's nice to know that I indirectly have that exposure to the energy industry without really researching it or being involved, right? 
Other than that, we also have two other energy stocks in the top 10. We've got Enbridge and TC Energy, which I own. Uh, but yeah, it's a really, really good ETF. I like it. And because it's a little down and it's a foundational core holding, I was very happy to add to that this month as well. And a final stock that I added to, and this frankly is a very, very negligible amount. It was literally like $10 uh, from leftover dividends, but I did a, a fractional buy and that was of the Granite Real Estate Investment Trust. My friends, Granite is such a great REIT. And when I look at the fact that REITs have been getting massacred this year, to me, this is exciting because it means that, of course, over the long term, it'll compound at an even higher rate, right? If you buy something like that at all-time highs, you may not compound as much, but if it gets massacred and it is a compounding type of REIT, then, of course, your expected returns will be higher. So I'm very excited to continue adding to Granite, which people don't like very much. The dividend yield is not very high, but it does hike the dividend every year. And, of course, if you zoom out on that chart, if you don't look at just the last year or two, but you look at the last 10 years, you see that you get some capital appreciation as well. It remains one of the REITs with lower debt, certainly has less debt than RioCan and Smart Centers, um, and it has a lower payout ratio as well, meaning that, you know, they can withstand a little less profits if that happens and they'll be okay. I'm not scared of them cutting the distribution. So I like Granite a lot. I think it's very powerful and I'm happy to add to it and keep compounding. So, you know, I think these recent buys are very much a, a reflection of the type of strategy that I want to have, which is focus first on broad index funds. The S&P 500 too is a really good index fund to have. Like if you've got to have one, this is the one. Um, then have a focus on these really powerful compounders, low payout ratio with strong dividend growth and capital appreciation. Then have a little bit of focus on dividends as well because we like good dividends, you know. And then of course have a REIT. Why not? That is more of a contrarian investment, which is nice to have as well. That was my first time deploying fresh cash in a while because as you know, Previously, earlier in this year, we were, you know, working on our wedding and, and flights to London and all these things. So I did not put much new cash, but now I've, I'm back to putting new cash in the markets. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited for, for what's to come. You know, whether we get a recession or some other bad thing, it's going to happen at some point. You know, stocks will probably fall, but at the same time, that is really a blessing if you are very young and if you don't need the money. Any money that I deploy into the markets is not money that is needed now. It is, in fact, I call this brokerage account the black hole, right? So it's not money that I plan to take out. It is money that I'm putting in there and I want it to compound over time. Anyhow, my friends, that is all I had to share for today. I am recording this week a really, really interesting and fun guest. So I'm very excited for this conversation. I think it'll be really cool. We're going to talk about a lot of stocks that have never been spoken about on this channel. And uh, I have another guest lined up too. We just need to figure out the date, but it should be also in September too. So yeah, a lot of fun coming up. Very excited to keep growing this podcast and I appreciate all of you. Thank you once again for listening to the Newcomer Investor channel and I look forward to connecting again with you soon.